Welcome to the Mission Brain Podcast, the official podcast of the Mission Brain Foundation, bringing insights into the fascinating realm of global neurosurgery. I am Luca, and I will be your host. Dr. Bartholomew is a Division Chief of Neurosurgery at SUNY Downstate University in Brooklyn, New York. He obtained his medical degree at ICANN School of Medicine in New York City and went on to complete his neurosurgery residency at ICANN at Mount Sinai. Prior to completing two postgraduate fellowships, respectively in neurotrauma and global surgery at UCSF. Between 2017 and 2019, he was a Paul Farmer Global Surgery Fellow at the Harvard Program of Global Surgery and Social Change, where he also completed a Master of Public Health with a particular focus on global health and public health leadership at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. As a global neurosurgeon and as a Brooklyn-born Haitian American, he gave back to his community by co-founding the Society of Haitian Neuroscientists, a US-based international society of neuroscience professionals of Haitian descent practicing in various fields, working to advance neurological and neurosurgical care in Haiti through medical attention, medical education, and aid efforts. Some of you may recall Dr. Key Park referring to him in our first episode as one of the upcoming worldwide leaders of global neurosurgery. And he has already established himself as such thanks to his work and giving back to his community. I have the pleasure of getting to know him last year in occasion of the Harvard Hackathon. I was inspired by the vision, his vision of the future of neurosurgery in the global landscape. I cannot wait for him to share his perspective with our audience. Dr. Bartholomew, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Luca. First of all, you are very proud of your Haitian roots. How did your identity shape your career choices and how does it affect your work today? Great questions. Um, well, uh, in 2010, I was a second year medical student. Um, at the time, I was actually an MD-PhD student um, at Mount Sinai. My intention at the time was to complete a PhD um, in some aspect of neurobiology, probably neuro-oncology. That's I was leaning in that direction. Um, and, uh, and to subspecialize into neurosurgery, uh, etc. Um, my identity and background was important to me, um, and I knew sooner or later I would be involved in giving back if you were somehow okay um, but it wasn't front and center of what i was doing in my career or what i was planning in my career i had participated in one um, mission trip and it was truly a, a mission trip you know which uh, in some ways has become a derogatory term in global health yeah, 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 precisely. Um, but I thought this particular trip was doing good. It was a, a Haitian orphanage um, um, where several nurse practitioners at another New York institution um, traveled every year uh, to provide health assessments. And so I did that before medical school. It was my first and only um, global health experience, if you will. And, um, you know, I just went along because I was going to apply to medical school and I spoke Haitian Creole and I thought maybe my language skills would be useful. And they certainly were, they were shocked. They didn't even know I spoke Haitian Creole, um, strangely enough. Um, but, um, I, that trip inspired me, um, shaped my decision to pursue a career in medicine. Um, but didn't really influence my thoughts about whether or how I was going to be useful in Haiti. Um, in the future. But 2010 was an important year because that's when the very large earthquake hit Haiti. Um, 
you know, seven, you know, above seven magnitude earth, uh, earthquake, um, where there were, you know, some people estimate 200 to 300,000 deaths. And it was, you know, this t awful, awful catastrophe, January 12th, 2010. All Haitians remember this date now. Um, it's commemorated every year. And um, I lost family. Many Haitians lost family. Um, uh, but that really impacted me and had me reflect deeply about um, my experience as the son of two Haitian immigrants in the U.S. And, um, you know, the conditions in Haiti that had my parents choose to immigrate, um, as well as all of the things I got to benefit from being born and raised in the United States, um, and sort of even some philosophical questioning about like, why is it that I get to have access to all of these things, but my exact like equivalent clone, whoever that would have been in Haiti, you know, would not have had any of these possibilities or had a very different array of possibilities. So all of this was in the background as I was processing um, the trauma um, of the earthquake. So I had been fortunate enough to meet Paul Farmer at an earlier point before the earthquake, and it was completely random. My wife was a human rights lawyer at the time, and Paul Farmer happened to sit on the uh, board um, of her nonprofit organization. It was the National Economics and Social Rights Initiative. Okay, And so he was coming through New York, I want to say either late 2008 or 2009, something like that. And you know, she tells me, hey, Paul Farmer's coming through, and I had learned about him separately, you know, having read his book, uh, The Uses of Haiti, many, many years prior, even before going into medicine and thought, oh, here's this uh, white American guy who knows Haiti deeply, like my family. Like it was the first time I heard an, a non-Haitian reading this book. I, I, I read um, accounts and well-documented histories um, that reflected a deep knowledge about Haiti that I only recognized from conversations in my family. And I thought, who is this guy? And, and you know, how does he have the audacity to, um, to announce to the public the U.S.'s very, very um, controversial role in Haiti? Okay, so I want to try to wrap this up. It's a long story, but bottom line is I got to meet Paul Farmer. That was amazing. Um, got his contact information. So now later when the earthquake happened, I emailed him. I said, I emailed him in Haitian Creole. I wanted him to notice my email. So I emailed him in Haitian Creole. I, I was like, hey, we met you know, at this event. Um, and uh, I don't know how to be useful as a medical student. Um, but you know, I'm Haitian American. Can I be helpful? And he writes back immediately, probably because it was in Haitian Creole. And he says, absolutely. We definitely need a Haitian American medical student here right now, because I have a bunch of surgeons coming in to operate on these patients. And none of them speak the language. None of them understand the culture. They can't actually connect or interact with the patients. You would be a perfect member of this team. So he puts me on a private jet to go work at the uh, so the Bon Sauveur uh, Sociomedical Complex, which was the flagship um, Partners in Health Hospital in Kaj, Haiti. And I was there for two months as a surgical coordinator, rounding on patients. So I went from medical student to like surgical coordinator, rounding on patients every day, welcoming teams, um, helping them get accustomed to Haitian culture and um, translating for all of them. All the patients were seeing me as their doctor because I was the one talking to them. Um, but I was also helping to set up these surgeries. So a lot happened there. It cemented for me um, a surgical pathway. It had me start thinking about, well, um, 
since I want to go into neurosurgery, how can I be useful in Haiti as a neurosurgeon, right? Um, and then one of the teams that came through was led by John Mira, um, who is an ENT surgeon and the you know, founding leader of the program in global surgery and social change at Harvard currently. But he was very early even in the creation of that effort um, in 2010. So all of these things happened during that two-month period that I was you know, in Haiti being of service and thinking about my future. Came back, dropped out of the PhD program. I had no, I saw, I mean, I spent a few months in the lab thinking about whether to do that, but I didn't see how that was going to be useful to a career where I now wanted to be of service to the Haitian people somehow. Um, and then I focused on the question, how can I be useful in Haiti as a neurosurgeon? So the, my first question was, what does Haiti need neurosurgeons for? Does Haiti have any neurosurgeons? The basic questions. And did the search of the literature, found some mentors to help me put this together, and then pitched a research proposal based on a study I saw that had been done in Tanzania. I thought, oh, I could do something like this in Haiti myself. Go sit at some Haitian hospitals, track every single person coming in, and see how many people need a neurosurgeon, how many don't. That was the, the basic question, right? Um, but that ended up being a very powerful question because it, it was an inquiry into the neurosurgical disease burden and the neurological disease burden of Haiti. So I was fortunate enough to get funded by the Department of Neurosurgery at Mount Sinai. They gave me a $30,000 grant to go spend a year in Haiti. And that's what I did, um, I think, between my third and fourth year of medical school. And I surveyed everyone coming into the to three different um, tertiary care centers in Haiti. So that was about 7,000 patients I saw that year and you know, figured out that somewhere between, let's say, 15 and 19% of the people coming in, depending on the hospital, had some kind of neurological and neurosurgical disorder. I figured out that the neurological priority was stroke and the neurosurgical priority was trauma, neurotrauma. So um, that basically laid out the blueprint for the rest of my career. I matched into neurosurgery at Mount Sinai, which I was fortunate to because they knew me. I was a known entity. They knew what I was about. So then when during residency, I had the opportunity to go um, to Harvard as a Paul Farmer Global Surgery Research Fellow, they were fully supportive because they knew exactly what I was about. Because they're like, oh, in fact, I remember, you know, Dr. Josh Betterson looking at me when he, when I forwarded the announcement for the fellowship to him, he said, global surgery, this is you. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. So that was exciting because I knew I was going to get the support and, um, and I did. And they made it possible for me to, to go spend two years at Harvard um, even though I did take call the second year, I had to be back and forth between Boston and New York, and I got my MPH at Harvard. Um, but during the first year before that MPH, I was in Haiti one to two weeks a month, continuing to build on what I had started as a medical student. So um, you see, that's a very long-winded answer, but you can see how it constructed my entire career trajectory as a global neurosurgeon. Um, and um, you know, it made a lot of sense when I got more coaching about my career steps to follow up that training with more advanced clinical training in neurotrauma, since that was clearly going to be the um, the overwhelming priority in uh, global neurosurgery, at least in Haiti. And then I found out probably everywhere in the world later on. Um, this opportunity to become the founding division chief of neurosurgery in a community that is very strongly Afro-Caribbean and serves a huge Haitian community in Brooklyn, where I come from was completely unforeseen um, and a very incredible, um, you know, sort of 
high risk, high reward opportunity to take straight out of training. Um, but I, you know, besides the preparation I had to become a global neurosurgeon, if you will, um, that preparation, I would say, prepared me very well for this new position because now I actually get to serve a community that suffers from a lot of health disparities that deals with a lot of what populations in low and middle income countries are dealing with in this huge immigrant community. And I'm actually serving my people, you know, right here in, in New York. So, um, so now um, I get to do global neurosurgery things, both internationally as well as um, locally here. And I'm uh, working on building research projects that actually bridge um, those comparable needs. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, even writing an email to Paul Farmer in Creole is amazing. <laughs> I was actually reading your perspective study uh, in the emergency department, the, the results at least. And one thing that was uh, that uh, struck me as very interesting is that around 17, 18% of the neurotrauma cases uh, were the result of assault. And it really turned my mind onto how political and social instability can directly influence the occurrence of neurological and neurosurgical disease. I was also reading a statement from the Society of Haitian Neuroscientists that you signed uh, that states that in the past few years, doctors have been kidnapped for ransom and even killed. And my question to you is, how can a neurosurgeon gain the tools to deal with issues that may seem too far too big for his own niche? Yeah, to answer your question directly, we need we need to step outside of what we think of as classic neurosurgical training and supplement our training. Okay, uh, and I hasten to add that we always do this as neurosurgeons when we are committed to careers as academic neurosurgeons, because as academic neurosurgeons, um, we take on the responsibility of advancing the field and to advance the field, to advance oneself in anything. It, it, it is a requirement of advancement to go beyond one's comfort zone, right? So if one is going to advance the field in neuro-oncology, you will be taking on um, studies and experiences in oncology that go far beyond what is the standard curriculum for a neurosurgeon in training. Yes. Correct? Yeah. So similarly, um, in functional neurosurgery, if you're going to be a functional an academic functional neurosurgeon, you're probably going to be um, among the first uh, trialing new technologies, changing, um, you know, testing neurosurgical therapies in psychiatric disorders that don't have much history behind them in terms of those kinds of treatments, really put, you know, pushing the bar further. And you'll have studies sometimes that will come back to the bench, you know, things that are being tested, you know, in other species before you, they're ready for um, you know, prime time trials, et cetera. So you'll be stepping outside of your comfort zone. Uh, global neurosurgery is no different. So the question is, where do you go to get those experiences? Well, not necessarily on the bench, although in some situations that might be relevant, um, but you may need an education in health policy. You may need an education in economics, okay? Um, you may need to, to get um, more bread and butter training in epidemiology and statistics if the way that you want to have an impact is partner with people wherever you're working to provide rich data for advocacy, right? Data um, provides us with, a, you know, a very, very, very strong ammunition for conversations with people who are not neurosurgeons about things that matter 
to people who need neurosurgery. Okay, so um, in uh, the articles, uh, Neurosurgery and Sustainable Development Goals that I co-authored with Keith Park and, and Walt Johnson, we talked about um, how the neurosurgeon can be a leader in advancing um, the uh, achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals um, and what aspects of those goals are, are, are specifically relevant to neurosurgeons. And then we end in our way forward with some um, training priorities for global neurosurgeons. And we talked about um, uh, the space of social medicine, medical anthropology, you know, social sciences, etc. You have to get this additional training. If you show up in neurosurgery, having had some of that training, that can help. But, you know, it's, you know, the first thing you want to do is, is become, be aware of where you, where one is limited and then go get that training. And if you're going to, if it's going to be a research driven, um, career, then you want to, you know, ask the kinds of questions that lead to answers that respond to the unmet need for neurosurgical care. Now, that's my answer to your question directly. I, I one comment about the 17%, uh, et cetera. I think what's important in that article was the way people saw Haiti then, because Haiti now is quite different. Haiti is in the midst of a major socio-political crisis right now. And the context of violence and insecurity is actually quite recent. And I would say it started in earnest, no pun intended, uh, in 2019, okay? Um, and I won't go through all of that. It's a longer conversation. But Haiti now, um, if I were to repeat the study that I did in, uh, you know, that study was done, you know, you were reading from 2014, but that study was done 2012, 2013. If I were to repeat it now, I would expect those assault numbers to be dramatically higher. So one of my goals in reporting what I found then was for people to recognize, hey, Haiti, as we were thinking of Haiti at that time, was not actually as dangerous a place as many people thought. Because what's important is what were the majority of the, what was the majority of the head trauma since you read that paper, right? Do you remember what yeah, the it was, mechanism uh, it was, was for the majority? Motorcycle accidents. Yeah, exactly. Motor vehicle accidents. So, so actually, the important thing was for people to recognize Haiti's actually not that different from most other places around the world. That was important because if one's knowledge of Haiti was limited to what you read in media coverage, you would think, oh, maybe 90% of you know, head traumas are from assault because Haiti's a dangerous place. Well, Haiti was not, and I would say has never been a dangerous place per se, um, like ontologically as a country. And in fact, at the time that that, that study was published, I think you'd be interested to to look at what the differences were in assault and criminality if you looked at official statistics in Haiti versus, say, Jamaica or the Dominican Republic. Um, not to take shots at any of these places, but the data is there for all to see. You know, actually look and see. And there's often a mismatch between what the data is actually about the context of criminality, assault, violence, right? Um, you know, what the data actually tells you, and then what the official policy positions are in terms of the U.S. warnings about whether it's safe to travel and, uh, and then what the media is reporting. But Haiti right now is a much, much more dangerous place today than it was even three, four years ago. And that is because we are in a major sociopolitical crisis of proportions that have never been seen before in Haiti. The president was assassinated last year. You know, there has been a rising, um, uh, let's call it, 
pandemic that that term has come into our our um, you know you know our uh, our day to day uh, conversation in recent years a pandemic of criminality authored by a lot of gangs um, that appear to be politically motivated based on the sanctions that Canada and the U.S. have been levying on multiple politicians who are accused of supporting these gangs. And um, it's in a major, major, major crisis of national insecurity. And so um, so if you're going to be a global neurosurgeon like me um, working in Haiti, you've got to pay attention to these things and analyze what are the opportunities for safe intervention and support. And those opportunities may be greater right now in the space of advocacy, you know, than they are uh, in terms of being able to actually go there physically. Because if we, you know, you don't want to go and put yourself at personal risk to do these things. At the same time, you don't want to abandon the place because these things are happening. You know, it's the fact that these things are happening and can happen that makes the case for advancing access to neurosurgical care and other things. But we've got to figure out how do we do that safely and effectively. So I would say advocacy is the big opportunity right now, um, you know, such as the advocacy statement that you read from my society. Currently, given the conditions that you have been talking about, how often do you go to Haiti? Uh, I have not been to Haiti since uh, September of uh, last year. I went September of last year following the more recent earthquake. Um, very briefly, I went to support uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Judy Lafortune, who's uh, the youngest and only locally trained neurosurgeon there. Um, and uh, since then, I have postponed or canceled any other trips um, as I have seen what has continued to unfold. Um, I've continued to, and my society has continued to, to support the neurologists who are training at one of the hospitals we work with, with virtual case conferences and lectures. Um, and, um, you know, we've also continued to support uh, through fundraising. So one of our members is the president of the Haitian Psychological Association. He let us know that there was a crisis hotline to support um, the mental and emotional health of Haitians during this time. So we've been doing some fundraising um, to help support the functioning of that hotline. We have a recent local fundraiser um, that uh, that provided $3,000 to support that hotline, um, which is a you know welcome contribution. But my contributions in Haiti um, are necessarily going to be of that nature right now. Um, what virtual support that I and that my society can safely provide, as well as um, um, uh, advocacy. But um, until things are safer, I'm not going to be able to go there in person and continue on the neurosurgery capacity building relationship that I started putting in place with our main partnering hospital uh, about a year ago. Yeah, I, I recall reading a paper of yours, a publication of yours, uh, about creating a self-sustaining neurosurgical residency program in Haiti. And I also recall reading that there's less than 10 neurosurgeons, uh, I mean, formally trained neurosurgeons in Haiti in total. How much can this current uh, socioeconomic and political crisis actually uh, hinder our possibility of making something like this happen in, in the near future? In a tremendous, tremendous way, in a tremendous way. I mean, I'll tell you that right now, so 
firstly, that the program that that paper was referring to is definitely under assault, okay, by by the current context of insecurity. Um, there is an effort to try to keep it alive. And actually, there is a new trainee in that program, officially. And that trainee is a member of my society as well. Um, and up to even, so just to give you an example of how do I continue to support virtually, even up to a couple of days ago, um, that trainee was sending me um, questions, um, videos of cases, you know, his differential for um, a patient with uh, some sort of a space occupying mass based on a hypodensity that was seen on a CT of uh, the patient's head and how to carry out um, the workup in a context of such limited resources. Um, you know, when did it make sense to proceed with a craniotomy, things like that. So, um, so I continue to provide him that coaching um, as part of the commitment I have in trying to, you know, keep up our ability to train neurosurgeons. It's better than nothing. However, it's not much better <laughs> than nothing. If okay, um, we need we need to do much much better, and we won't be able to until things are a lot safer. The number of neurosurgeons in Haiti, fully trained neurosurgeons. Um, so there are five people in the country who have full training as neurosurgeons. All right, um, one of them does not practice neurosurgery at all and has not for for many years. Um, one of them is um, recently retired, okay? Um, and um, hold on, let me see if my, my, num my number's right. Did I say five, one, two, three, four, five, actually six. So one of them not practicing at all for many years, the other one pretty recently retired. So that leaves four. So of the four who remain, one of the four is the prime minister, okay? So the prime minister um, is not able to be a regularly active neurosurgeon, although there are some reports that he does still operate from time to time, and I, I suspect he does, um, but certainly wouldn't be anywhere near act, you know, as active as he was prior to being in that position. So now you're left with three really, really active people, um, and one of those three very active people is the dean of the state medical school. He was recently named dean of the medical school. Um, but I'm sure he's still involved in practicing. And then you have two people at the Belnamo's Hospital where the residency program you read about um, is, uh, you know, currently lives. Um, so, um, so that program, which is supported by the University of Miami and Project MediShare, uh, you know, I think has a future and is probably um, constrained by the current sociopolitical context, but is also waiting for that to to calm down. And then um, in my partnership with the University Hospital of Mirbalet, which is the main partners in health supported hospital now in Haiti, um, we have plans to scale up neurosurgical capacity there. And that will likely include some form of a training program, hopefully in the foreseeable future. Amazing. I have so much to unpack. But one question I have is related to your uh, last answer. You said that of course, as a neurosurgeon, uh, most neurosurgeons do implement their education and their training with um, supplemental training that may not be directly um, 
involved with 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 their formal training such as leadership skills and uh, political context to their training itself but i believe you you are an outlier i mean there's not many people that in in the past 10 years have been going back to their local communities once or twice a year at least before once or twice a month at least before the unrest and um, i was wondering first of all how you were able to take all that time and second of all if mm. there it has something to do with being able to negotiate uh, pro bono hours throughout the year with hospitals once you get your degree yeah yeah excellent question so you know first is to recognize and i think this is an important opportunity for people to understand even how neurosurgery training works right because in, at least in the united states uh, and many other countries it takes a long time it's many years you know seven years at least for the for the residency program and then uh, during those seven years um, those seven years should be seen as um, a journey of you know in and of themselves and not just some means to an end you know they're very transformative seven years and they will include these days about a year of elective time sometimes more um, the amount of elective time has expanded and contracted um, uh, over time and uh, given the uniqueness of my interests, I was supported in my ability to get a full two-year package of elective time during my residency, okay? Um, and, and we made that work in part by making sure I took some clinical call that second year. And that's why I had to sort of be back and forth to help support our trauma center back in New York while I was finishing my MPH. But that elective time, so, so, so think about it. So now in medical school, I had the full year in Haiti. Okay, um, for for research, and that was a full 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 time immersion. In residency, I had the uh, global surgery fellowship, and during that first year, because I had well defined uh, research uh, and advocacy priorities in Haiti, I was supported in my ability to spend one to two weeks every single month of my first year in Haiti. So that first year, I was in Haiti probably a, a approximately half of the year as part of the work I was doing with the Global Surgery Fellowship. During the MPH, I wasn't traveling as frequently, but I probably had three or four major trips to Haiti during that MPH. And those were structured more around um, conferences and um, sort of policy advocacy opportunities, as well as some neurosurgery support, but not as much as I had the first year. Um, you know, and then I went back for years six and seven and had very little travel to Haiti. I think my last trip prior to the pandemic was in September 2019, shortly after the um, WFNS meeting in Beijing. Um, I structured it during my vacation time so that I could go spend a little bit of time with my neurosurgery colleagues and um and a little bit of, um, I think, Ministry of Health time uh, in September of that month. Then the pandemic happened, changed everything. Um, I finished my residency during the pandemic. Uh, and then during my Neurotrauma Fellowship, I also had this opportunity to pick up a second Global Surgery Fellowship um, when the Global Surgery folks at the CHESA program at UCSF learned of me and learned of my interest given the um, the uh, relief efforts I was trying to 
organize around the earthquake early that year. And so they invited me to join that fellow cohort. And, um, and I was supported in what was my last trip to Haiti um, in September, um, yeah, in September of uh, 2021. So, so, for, so I, get, I think the first important point is there were multiple opportunities for me to do this during um, components of my training, but I was in training, okay? Now, um, in this position, I have negotiated for myself um, a protected six weeks of travel time, you know, with a budget to support me during, yeah, per year, with a budget to support me during, during that travel time. Um, and one of the reasons I I've been able to do that, and it's not just, you know, this position that I ultimately chose. I, I had several compelling um, opportunities when I was in interviewing and the opportunities that I was looking at most seriously were very early on in the negotiation process prepared to offer that to me because they were able to see very clearly that this is what was distinguishing me as a rising young leader in neurosurgery. It was this global health space that I was helping to pioneer with others. And so they wanted to make sure, given my commitment as an academic neurosurgeon to keep expanding in that space, they wanted to make sure that I had the time and space to do that because that was a need for me. It was actually a non-negotiable need, if you will. Like I would not have taken a job that didn't support my ability to do that. It was not going to be just some extracurricular thing. This is who I am as an academic, as an academic neurosurgeon, and um, and that really empowered me to to get that negotiated into my time. So, um, and it's been great, even as I'm now sort of suffering through. Okay. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, what my kind of life mission is, um, you know, suffering through an inability to go to Haiti in person, um, that that protected time has supported my ability to um, uh, attend some conferences I haven't before um, in East Africa recently, um, build some new relationships related to global neurosurgery in Kenya, um, a recent conference um, for the Latin American Federation um, and some new partnerships that are coming up out of that and um, and the rest of my global surgery work, even as I'm waiting for Haiti to become a safe place for me to travel to again. Well, I have a question for you about this. I think you've been doing amazing work and everybody recognizes that you've been doing amazing work, but you're clearly an outlier that is very compelling and very good at negotiating. Do you believe that just relying on personalities such as yourself can be self-sustaining and can work in the long term, or do we need to look towards collective agreements and collective bargaining for doctors that may be interested in pro bono activity throughout the year? Yeah, well, first, so um, I appreciate the compliment that you built into your question. Uh, you know, I would say that I also um, invested in my leadership development because I felt that that was a strong requirement of being effective in global health. Um, so, uh, so I think that's important for people looking at this career path. Um, collective bargaining uh, for physicians to do pro bono work. Well, yes, and I, I'd be careful with the idea of pro bono. So 
Um, I don't know that we should automatically consider the work we do in global surgery as work that is going to be charitable or pro bono. In fact, I would, I would encourage us to, to think otherwise. I would rather have us consider that, number one, there is a moral imperative, uh, and that's just by understanding uh, history and um, uh, the inequity that has resulted from, from history, right? So there's a moral imperative, just like there's a moral imperative in the practice of medicine, number one, right? Number two, uh, there is strong political reasoning for doing this, right? It makes good foreign policy sense to um, build bi-directionally empowering relationships um, th that we use global surgery as the context to build. Okay, so there's strong political reasoning. Um, three, there is um, strong uh, academic opportunity um, that I would encourage us to pursue in an equitable way. So have scientific equity in mind and think about how do we support the advancement and development of scientific culture in the countries of our partners, if we are partnering with low and middle income countries to pursue those opportunities. And, you know, th those should be mutually beneficial as well. Okay. Um, fourth, um, for the high income country, there is um, certainly um, a space of corporate social responsibility. If we are in healthcare systems where we're functioning, um, you know, in the private sector, and that is often the case in our fragmented health systems, um, but there is a marketing and publicity opportunity, you know, to let the world know that th we're also, you know, engaging in this um, kind of work. All right. And it's to leave the planet better than the way it was when we got here. Um, and then fifth, there is probably an array of real business opportunities. If we are committed to looking at disruptive uh, technology and supporting and advancing disruptive technology in service of health equity, I think there are real business opportunities to consider there also, right? Um, and so I think all of that deserves to be in this. And you know, not that there should be no space for charity or pro bono work, um, but that's the least of what we do. And I think that's important to bring to any collective bargaining uh, conversation. And I think the, um, the leaders to look to in this area are people like Jim Rutka in, in Toronto and people like Graham Fegan in Cape Town, okay, South Africa. Um, uh, you know, both both happen to be, you know, by coincidence, both happen to be pediatric neurosurgeons, um, and both happen to be neurosurgeons running departments of surgery, not just neurosurgery. They are running all of surgery, and both of them in their institutions have supported the development of global surgery as a legitimate and vitally important career pathway that many of their faculty are interested in pursuing. So they've made it possible for people to pursue those pathways, um, you know, including practice pathways for a global surgery. So, you know, I think that's where we want collective bargaining uh, conversations to go, but they certainly need to happen and, and should be happening as we um, witness growing interest 
in global surgery among practicing surgeons? This is a very interesting answer you gave me, and I actually agree 100%. I always had that feeling, but you need somebody to be doing these things to actually believe that it's possible. And thank you so much for leading by example in this. One question that I do have regarding uh, what you just said is, do you believe that just being able to correctly leverage um, corporate social responsibility and brand image you think that would be enough to fulfill the, the needs of global neurosurgery in itself? Or do you believe that we need to create actual practical incentives for hospitals to be able to fund these opportunities that, as you said, shouldn't be pro bono? They should be, of course, paid. Yeah, um, I think it depends on the institution. You've got to know, you have to know the institution, the institution's culture, the leadership, the priorities of leadership. And um, and you've got to find a way to align yourself with the priorities of the institution. So, um, you know, there are perhaps there are institutions where that suffices. I wouldn't suspect or expect that to be the case, but, you know, it may be that the, the corporate social responsibility value for whatever reason may suffice at some place. Um, in my mind, it's probably going to take some combination of some of the factors I mentioned and an ability to align those uh, very well with the interests of the institution in order to have uh, any collective bargaining um, be effective. My belief is it shouldn't take any of it. <laughs> it shouldn't take, it shouldn't take any of any. Of, of this of this reasoning um and i think it's important for us to show up in the conversation really um believing and representing that you know it's it's really you know there, for me there's like a much more fundamental you know you know moral compass and i mean that from like a really what strikes me as a universal sense of ethics not even one that comes particularly from any you know specific religious tradition um you know, or, or any particular way of looking at right or wrong. I think anyone who um, uh, is uh, takes the responsibility of educating themselves about why we are dealing with profound inequity in the world will immediately be struck by the tremendous historical and social forces that have had that be the case. And, um, you know, I think leaders, it is incumbent upon leaders, including the leaders, leaders of all the institutions that you're referring to, to recognize their role and responsibility for, um, for leaving this world in better condition than, than it is in. So, um, so it shouldn't take such hard, um, bargaining, but in some places it may, you know, our podcast is mainly followed for the moment by medical students and residents. And you've been breaking the mold. You've been doing things that other people have never done before. And there isn't a protocol for this. So I was wondering if you had examples from your own experience or from experience of those close to you of how you can provide a financial incentive to an institution that could allow you to spend some time uh, giving back to local communities. Yeah. So, um, well, so I don't have a specific example 
of a financial incentive that I've worked on consistently. Now, um, there, there are probably some prospects I can refer to just as I have met entrepreneurs up to very recently. Um, and not only American entrepreneurs, like entrepreneurs and innovators um, in and from low and middle income countries with very powerful ideas um, that I've immediately recognized as ideas that disrupt, that could disrupt entire markets that are providing, um, you know, goods and services much, much more expensively than they need to be provided. <laughs> and goods and services that would, um, and with, by the way, with data behind them. Okay, and, and this is where I wanna go because I think for, for medical students and residents, um, I would encourage us to um, honor our career choice with the value of research because that research can also be used um, you know, towards profit motive if there is an interest in using it that way. Um, and there is value to the profit motive conversation, you know, whatever your thoughts may be about capitalism. Um, you know, uh, it is an economic conversation that we're in when we're talking about countries by income level, right? Um, and, um, and research is an important part of any enterprise like that. So I, what always struck me since I told you at the beginning of this conversation that I had dropped out of an MD-PhD program in favor of a MD-only program, um, I, perhaps I was in that MD-PhD phase of thinking long enough to recognize quickly that um, that that research and acad and publications, scholarly deliverables, were um, a vital currency in academic medicine. At least that was clearly the case here in the United States in the context I was practicing. So I thought, okay, well, if I could find um, um, interesting and instructive ways to um, report on and write about the kind of things I saw I wanted to do because I felt they needed to be done, then that would probably be of interest. Um, and I learned over time that that was the case. You know, as I looked around and studied the different cultures of different institutions, I even saw publication requirements, right? I mean, that's a very strong statement of how much an institution is valuing um, academic productivity by way of producing publications, right? There were residencies with like a, a quantity per year requirement. And you know, that was not for no reason when I started to understand the requirements for advancing um, at, at, you know, in professorial levels, for example, at academic institutions, there was a publication requirement in the, in the calculus because institutions also build their reputations and, and notoriety and, um, and ability to seek and win grants that support the research that lets them become leaders in the fields that interest them um, through producing academic, you know, scholarly deliverables, publications. And so think, you know, so think about this. Um, I think this is sort of low hanging fruit for, for people in medicine and surgery. How do you turn your interest into an interesting um, scientific question and then deal with the things we need to deal with in global surgery if you're going to do this. That means 
you can't do this the old way. The old way is what got us here. When I say the old way, the colonial way, the what's in it for me, how do I get the most out of this? How do, you know, what's my agenda? Let me set my agenda. Let me do whatever it takes to get that done, right? Um, by hook or by crook. Um, that's how we got to these disparities. So now, you know, we want to be effective in the development of a field that's supposed to be founded in health equity. It's equity. It's a different whole other ball game, right? That means now we've got to get really, really good at listening. So how do you listen? Well, it's, it's a, you know, it's a catch 22. You've got to ask a question. You have to ask a question if you're going to listen. So you know, what's my question going to be? You know, who am I going to ask that, my question to? So you've got to ask a question and then be ready to, you know, kind of shut up and listen deeply and then check. Did I get the, did I really get what's going on here? Um, and if there's any, you know, um, call, you know, check your understanding with the person you're talking to. So, um, like this is actually the, the heart of the matter. So if you're talking with um, a surgeon, okay, somewhere in, let's say, um, West or Central Africa, where um, there has not been any neurosurgical um, access uh, for a long time, but there's a ton of people who need access to neurosurgery and you meet a surgeon who's been taking care of the head traumas, for instance, right? Well, um, you want to, sit down with this person and have a conversation and ask this person some questions and make sure they're the right questions and really empower that person to fully communicate with you what what needs are there given what that person has been has been dealing with right um, and then think about well um, is there some way to generate um, publishable research out of this that provides data for both advocacy as well as an effective needs assessment to build a new way forward. Because, you know, what you can provide if you're coming from a high-income country context is you may be able to plug resources into the right place, right? So figure out, well, you know, where is that place and, you know, who gets that and how? And then, you know, let your partner be your teacher about the, the way to do that. And then, you know, there's a whole lot of sort of cultural humility that comes into structuring that. But focus there for students and residents, you know, focus on building effective research projects. And then, you know, if you wanna to move towards innovation with this, the data will help you. Amazing. Regarding uh, research, I think, uh, I always thought that, I find it amazing when you have multi-center trials from multiple nations that are able to compile results from different perspectives and finding a way of making it work. But I think one of the main issues, correct me if I'm wrong, may be the lack of, lack of adequate collection systems and data collection systems. I was wondering if through your time in Haiti, even collecting data, that ever uh, was a problem for you and how you can try to solve that in lower middle income countries in order to be able to actually collaborate uh, and define needs in a way that is very scientific and not just based on the perceptions of, um, of surgeons or of doctors in um in, in these countries <laughs> so uh, um but the reason i was laughing is because uh i'm i i have a very very recent example that you know you're talking about low and middle income countries and um i have a very uh, local example of how 
uh, an electronic medical record system was uh, unfortunately, um, uh, let's just say shut down. I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. And that caused, that has been a source of great panic where that occurred. And, uh, and, and it sent us right back to using paper. And that was in a high income country context. So these things are not limited to low and middle income countries. And actually, um, you know, it's, uh, you, know, when the, you know, when these things happen and talking to people who dealt with it, um, one of the concerns is how do we collect all the data for the clinical research we were going to be doing? <laughs> right. So, um, so I think that, um, that answer is, goes back to the comments I made in the, at the end of the prior question, um, partnering effectively with locals. You know that if you are coming from a low, from a high income country context, and you want to figure out how to effectively transfer resources uh, to advance health equity, and you want to do it in the data collection um, and record keeping space, and you got to, you know, find out what your partners know already. What have they tried? Um, have they tried anything? Um, is there, and you, you may be surprised to find that there are things that are, that are done or things that are in place. Are you working at a local level? Or are you working at a, you know, ministry, ministry level? Um, if it's at a ministry level, are they already using some of the international databases? You know, like some of the databases that the WHO um, uh, promotes, like the ERTEC, the International Registry for um, Trauma and Emergency Care. Okay, like is that being used? There are others, you know, DHIS and others. Um, what kind of data is currently being collected? Like, do the proper um, reconnaissance work, if you will, okay, in, in, a, in a full needs assessment, and then see what you can do. Um, uh, your partners may, if it's a small, single, you know, country thing, if there's really, really nothing in place, and your partners think it is reasonable to start having this stuff um, saved to a spreadsheet on a computer with like um, drives, you know, little, you know, memory sticks to start. Um, and there, you know, there's going to be some way to centralize this. So everyone who should has have access has access. Okay. Maybe, maybe you're going to start there just in terms of the data, the data collection. Um, Electronic medical records is is uh, is sort of a a bigger you know kind of a higher level matter, and that's going to be a conversation with people. There are going to be people keeping medical records. I promise you, and it's probably I could show you some pictures from Haiti. It's probably going to be some room, you know, or rooms with like innumerable paper you know folders. <laughs> the data for that study that you read, I, I got all of that data from paper. That was all paper. I went every single one of those 7,000 records. I read those records. <laughs> it was, that's why it was a one year project. Yeah. So, so I've, so um, I've got two minutes for my next yeah, meeting. I, I really need to let's jump off here, but this, I mean, it was, a, it was a pleasure for me. It was amazing for me to be able to interact with you. And I would love to do this again because I have so many questions. <laughs> And um, I actually think <laughs> doing something like this for medical students and residents can really help them focus on to what they would like to do, because there's many people that would like to be doing what you're doing, but have no clue of how to get there. And it, like leading by example and being able to uh, spread your example to as many people as possible is what we're trying to do with this podcast.
So I'm super happy to be able to, to interview you today. And thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks again for inviting me, Luca. And yeah, hopefully uh, we'll be able to do this again in the not too Amazing. far future. Have a nice day. Goodbye. Okay. All right. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. The Humanitas University Mission Brain Chapter is organizing a Christmas lottery to help fund their future missions. They have incredible prizes and the winners will be drawn in a live stream on their Instagram account. For every $5 you donate, you will be able to purchase one ticket. To be interviewed and for inquiries, email us at podcast at missionbrain.org. To donate to the foundation, please visit www.missionbrain.org.